building a foundation for tomorrow's naval aviators. The Bell 407GXI is the next-generation advanced helicopter training system, offering exceptional value and proven reliability. See the Bell 407GXI in action at bell.co slash navy407. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me are my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet, and my co-director of outreach and former fleet Master Chief, Paul Kingsbury, who also is the editor of the current edition of the Chief's Guide. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Ward. Ward, how's it going? Yeah. It's going great. Big we week. A, a very, it's been an incredible week, um, and we have a very special guest here in the studio with us. But before we get to him, um, I was at the Expeditionary Warfare School graduation this morning. We present the Lejeune Award each year to a writer um, who will ultimately be published in Proceedings. Which issue is that? The June be, issue, which be, we're working on right now. Okay, the June issue. I was there for that and for that. Um, but while I'm sitting there and chit-chatting um, with some of the, the graduates, um, two of the... Uh, the graduating officers, well, actually one, um, he heard my voice. He goes, are you Ward Carroll? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Cool. He goes, I recognized your voice. He said, can you give me a shout out? I said, yes, I have the power to give All you a right. shout we out. We can so do that, our fans. Let's say hello to Captain Matthew Hanks, who is a recon infantry officer, just finished Expedition Warfare School, graduated today and is headed back to Camp Lejeune. He lists himself as the number one podcast fan. And also Captain Alec Rakish, who is, he calls himself Harrier Pilot Extraordinaire. So he's going to Cherry Point um, right. to uh, be a RAG instructor down there. Um, and I told him that I am a graduate of Havelock High School and I lived on base at Cherry Point. My dad being an A6 pilot in those days. So uh, a lot of fun down there. Um, very impressive group of, of primarily O3s, primarily U.S. Marines, but there is a large international contingent, and there's also a joint contingent, and Army, Air Force, Navy. Um, very, very cool thing. As the regular listeners know, we have a great relationship with the Expeditionary Warfare School, one of our sponsored student fleet uh, schoolhouses. So I'll go back there in August when the new class gets there and talk to them about the Naval Institute and the broader um, reason for the independent forum and the marine component of the Naval Institute, um, which starting with General Lejeune is quite impressive. Um, and that's why we call that the Lejeune Award. But as you said, it's a big week. Uh, we were at Sea Air Space Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Always a great event. Had a chance to see a lot of our, uh, our corporate um, connections as well as some of the fleet connections. And uh, that's, that's always sort of half homecoming, half networking event uh, so right walking around the floor seeing old shipmates and uh, squadron mates uh, you know catching up with people i hadn't seen you know like rooster claggett for example rooster claggett. since yes. uh i think the last time i saw him was about 20 years ago so anyway yeah it was a great event and uh, I, I enjoyed seeing the uh uh, the Bell 407 GXI. They're yeah, we, uh, advertising. We talked to our friends right? at, at Bell, at who, Bell. as listeners know, are the sponsors of the podcast. But yeah, they're uh, really big on that airplane, and it was great to see uh, our friends Nate and Carl and Colin. Very exciting to see what they got going on there. 
Paul, what did you see at Sierra, Sierra uh, Space? So walked around with Carolina Olivieri looking for partnerships and uh, hey, uh, a lot of these organizations that were there um, that have similar kind of lines of effort, I guess I would say, you know, uh, dealing with the people side of it, not necessarily the tech side. So we, we met a few people, um, exchanged some cards, had some phone calls. Uh, so looking forward with that, but uh, ran into former McPon Mike Stevens, who's now the executive director of, the, of Big Navy League. So it was good to catch up with him real fast. And looking forward to uh, a follow-up conversation and uh, partnership with him going forward too. Yeah, and speaking of McPons, our guest in the studio today is McPon Russ Smith. So the fifteenth Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. Uh, who we thought was just going to call into the show today. Uh, we've, we've had this on our schedule for a, a few weeks now uh, and decided to surprise us and make the drive out to Annapolis and show up uh, in Studio B for Bill Bray's office uh, here. And uh, it, Russ, it's great to have you on the show again. Sir, I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, uh, any opportunity to come out here to Annapolis is 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 great. Uh, frankly, I, I love coming out here. So we took the took advantage of the opportunity to drive out and uh, do a little shopping in the mid store and support our midshipmen and uh, and then come on over here. So, so yeah, like, like couple- Bill said, you you are a repeat guest of the podcast. And uh, if listeners don't remember on the last show, uh, you mentioned the fact that you are not unfamiliar with the yard. Can you remind the listeners of your previous tour here? And so what you did? from June of uh, 2013 to December of 2016, I was the command master chief here and lived on the, on the yard at the Naval Academy. Yeah, right so. on Warden Field. Yes, Warden yeah. Field of John L. Warden fame. See, it all <laughs> it all intersects. It all makes Sorry. sense. <laughs> So and in fact, when I was in the uh, when we walked in the midshipman store, just to tell you how small it is, one of my uh, former mid kids, uh, his parents who are here with uh, his younger sister and their daughter, who's now a uh, second class midshipman, or I'm sorry, third class midshipman. She's still a youngster; she's about to move up, yeah. but uh, just finished her last final. They were in the store shopping when wow. I saw them, and I went oh provisioning. My God. So getting their yeah, navy gear. Stopped and 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 chatted for about 15, 20 minutes. So yeah, that's great. Opportunity to catch up. That's great. So we had you on the show last summer. You were the interim uh, McPon. Yes, uh, you hadn't been named uh, officially the Pond yet. Uh, it was uh, maybe, I think, July last summer. Uh, you were traveling. You were down in Norfolk, and uh, we did it uh, via phoner at that time, and it was over cell phone. The connection wasn't great. Mm-hmm. I remember telling uh, folks that uh, you and I first met in 1994. Mm-hmm. You were a, uh, an IS-2 uh, assigned to SEAL Team 4, and I was uh, a, a young lieutenant assigned as the intelligence officer for SEAL Team 4. Uh, you worked for me for about maybe a year and a half or two. I remember when uh, when we were in those assignments, uh, the Navy started the Seaman to Admiral program, mm-hmm. and uh, you were a an incredibly sharp young petty officer. And I said to our XO at the time, I said, I, I want to put uh, Petty Officer Smith in for this program. He thought it was a great idea. I approached you about it, and you said, Sir, that is a great honor. Thank you for thinking highly of me, but someday I want to be a Master Chief. And here you are. 25 years later, you are the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, which I think is just incredible. There is a step in there, if you don't mind. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. uh, as amazing uh, as your story I'm, was. I'm yeah. guessing there's a couple steps. <laughs> you, you did recommend me, and, and Chaz Heron, uh, God rest his soul, we actually just buried him last month, um, was the XO, and, and you guys did recommend me, and I did apply, and I wasn't selected. And uh, when I was talking to Scott Bladel, a quite famous senior chief is sat me down when i was grousing about it and said why do you want to be an officer and i said uh because that's what you do and he said do you understand the difference between being an officer and being a chief petty officer and i said well i think so and 
we sat down and had a two and a half hour conversation that changed my life. And I went back and I thought about it for about a week and you and I talked about it. And after that week, my goal became to be a chief petty officer. And so uh, that, that really was the end of me seeking a commission because I think he pointed out that there were aspects of not, one isn't better than the other, but my personality and things that he pointed out about me made me better suited to the chief's mess than perhaps the wardroom. Uh, things I liked, uh, my personality, the strengths that I had, uh, I was better suited to the mess than the wardroom. So I could do either, but I might be better suited and, and happier and, and more satisfied with a, with a life in the chief's mess. And he saw that in me. So that's a great so, story. So, Bill, are you trying to take credit for no? I wasn't at all. No, he had a, a, I, kind of like he had a large. I know yeah. that's what I thought. <laughs> he had a very large hand, in it, and frankly, uh, the attention to detail that I put into things like writing and a lot of other things I got from him. So I, I owe a lot to you and, and your mentorship and what I what I've gained from you in the years since. So well, we've stayed close, and it's been uh, a great friendship, and uh, appreciate your coming uh, to the studio today. So, yes, uh, so that said, what's the best part of your job? The best part of my job, I, in my opinion, is is getting out and talking to sailors and hearing what's on their minds, and figuring out from what we do in Washington D.C. how to best take what hurts their heads, what stands in their way. And remove it so that they can get after what they need to do in order to defend the nation. So if there's a policy, if there's an issue, if there's a thing that stands as a roadblock between them and mission effectiveness, I want to I want to I want to fix it and I want to be part of that solution set. So um, having that conversation, going out and finding where the problem is, getting that problem, getting it in front of the right people and getting it solved the right way through our different processes and efficiently and quickly is what I like being a part of. That's that's what I that's the best part of my job. What's a recent example? Um it can be as simple as as you know as as ridiculous as it sounds as getting a question like can we wear gloves with black fleece? And somewhere someone just didn't think it through and in 10 seconds you can solve a problem that pisses off sailors all over the place um, with lightning efficiency. <laughs> uh, and then there are problems like um, a more complicated issue, a command mass chief brought to us, that uh, there's a difference in the definition between a ward of the court and an adoptee. And they are very similar, but there are certain things that stand in the way of providing fair benefits and sharing benefits um, from the person who has those children as a war as their ward and not as an adoptee and there may be things like parental rights or a parent a, a parent you can't find giving up those rights willingly that stands in the way of you adopting those children uh, and finding out a way how do we change the law because some of these things reside in state law and so you have to find a way to maybe get um our military processes work with state governments to maybe look at their own state laws or get the military to lobby for a ledge prop to incentivize states to, I mean, there's a lot of different ways we can go about these things, but taking a more complicated challenge like that, that's standing in the way of what we can clearly see is the right thing to do. A, a, a sailor wants to share their benefits with their, essentially they're dependent, but because of, of a technicality, they're called a ward, not an adopt, you know, an adopted child. And how do we work around that? Um, that's a more complicated issue. And we're actually still chewing through that one. So, so I think that's an important 
you know, discussion to have is I think everyone thinks, you know, until they get up there, like, hey, you know, Mick Pond just goes to the CNO and makes everything happen. But there's these other levels of policy and, and politics that you got to deal with. So can you talk a little bit about that? How do you inter- interact with the policy level? And then, for example, one thing that you can do that's unique or that you do do is testify to Congress. Sure. So what's that look like um, to prepare for a testimony and what goes into that thinking? Well, to put to kind of put both of your things together, um, we get a lot of questions about credentialing. You know, how do I, as, as my family and I move, uh, my, my husband is moving with me, my civilian husband is moving with me, and they want to move their credential, their ability to do what they do, say, as a teacher uh, in this state to that state. Uh, these things are governed by the states, and you know we have a lot of things that are governed appropriately by states' rights. Um, so the federal government can't solve these things. We can't ask SECNAV to submit a legislative proposal to Congress to change it because it's owned by the state. What Congress can do is incentivize the states, which and they do so well, and they incentivized last year uh, over 42 states to come together on many different programs like this to incentivize uh, credentialing and reciprocity between states to share credentialing for things like uh, teaching and nursing and other things that as long as you're, you're maintaining um, what are those continuing educational units and things like that, yeah. that you can transfer that, that credentialing. So working with those and then working with the stakeholders to, you know, to prepare me for those testimony opportunities. So when they ask us both in the formal settings, you know, what are the things that you want? What are the things that you need? My PA folks, my legal support folks, the N1 people, CNIC, all these staffs all come over and they help us and we go to them and they help us. Uh, it's, it's a lot of prep work. It's literally weeks of preparation for that 90 minutes or 120 minutes that you spend in the room with them to make sure. Not to mention those other opportunities that we get for Hill calls, either when you're summoned or when we ask for one when we know that there's an opportunity. The next big thing that I want to solve is there are a lot of cases where officers come out of their careers, especially as, say, captains, where they're involved somehow with, with industry and they have um, – they have a situation where that 180 days or, or, or a year, whatever the cooling off period is that applies to them because of what they've done uh, is very appropriate. Enlisted people very rarely have that circumstance, yet we are still subjected to that 180-day cooling off period before they can go to work for the, for, for the federal government. And so we're looking to get alleged prop where, except in those narrow circumstances where there is a clear conflict of interest, maybe we can find some relief. It's been historically waived throughout the period of the war, but now that we're winding down, uh, we're finding more and more it's not giving a blanket waiver, and in fact, very rarely is it waived anymore. And so now more and more enlisted especially are running into this, and so we're we're looking, and so that's another example of one we're running we're running forward on. They're not coming to us and reacting to, we're actually running forward for. So, so you said uh, getting a waiver to go work for the federal government. Did you mean um, defense contractors? No, or? no, no. As, as a federal employee. So I want to hire somebody who uh, retired, and I have to wait 180 days, and I want to bring them in at 120. I, I have to seek a waiver, and those waivers are almost never granted anymore. Gotcha. So well, they had historic, like I said, over the period of the war, because of what we were doing, there was just sort of an understanding, and they granted these waivers almost in blanket fashion, but they haven't been doing that lately. And I, I wasn't even aware any, that, that it, you know, because I was never in leadership, you know, at that point in my career, I didn't know that affected us. And when I started to get this as a point of feedback, I was like, no, it doesn't apply to enlisted. And I was like, actually, it does. It's just been waived. And so hmm. when I got asked by OLA, they said, is there anything that you would want, you know, f- 
us to seek as a, is there anything you would want from Congress? As a matter of fact, there is. Yep. Um, because enlisted, like I said, very rarely have that. And supply, logistics, and procurement, maybe there's some some areas, like I said, where there's some, some clear conflict of interest, but there's very rarely that situation. So where there isn't, I don't see why we wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't make sense to bring us back in to continue our trade and, and practice if it makes sense. Yeah, I, I like that because, you know, towards the end of my retirement process, you know, I knew that and I was like, okay, there's a whole swath of jobs that are, you know what I mean, don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate to end up anyhow with the Naval Institute. But um, so on the down and in kind of stuff, um, kind of saw the lane, the keel was recently mm-hmm. updated and released. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and the changes and uh, what the fleet can expect? Yeah. So, um I think it would be very easy to focus on the fact that we folded the Chief Petty Officer Initiation Guidance in as probably the largest muscle movement in, in putting that into the guidance, you know, as, as last year you were yep. a part of, you know, we turned that into a more philosophical, aspirational document to talk about the, the best parts of growing a chief petty officer and what we want, not this compliance-based checklist of you can do this, you can't do that, because that's not really who we want to be. Um Recognizing that the laying the keel is a philosophical document that talks about the development of a sailor from the time they dep in to the time they hopefully retire as a fleet mass chief. And so it belongs in that document, not as a standalone thing that just says, hey, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. So we put it in there. But why every sailor needs to be reading this is because it does talk about things like uh, the introduction of character and leadership development far earlier in their career, you know, using tools and things like we're going to use like MBTI and things like that to increase self-awareness, which is so important to the development of a leader far earlier than we've ever done it in, in a sailor's career. The the FLDC and ILDC and ALDC can you just, um, just sorry, for those that found, don't know, sure, yeah, sure, what those yeah. Are. And I was going to describe next. Okay, so, gotcha. foundational leader development course, you know, is is the same three days, but it's a far more structured, sensical, uh, and consistently delivered because of our training teams and the model that we're going to use to deliver that that course, uh, which is now going to become the 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 course of record. We're we're moving to that now uh, with the with this version of laying the keel. Um, the ILDC, the Intermediate Level Development Course, is going or Intermediate Leader Development Course, is going to be the um, is going to be four days. So it adds another day, and again, same thing: consistent delivery by our training teams, training the trainers who then deliver that consistent product and then foster that continued deck plate discussion after the training teams are gone. Um, and then the Advanced Leader Development Course, that ALDC course that we're going to put our perspective first classes through. And by the way, this is no longer tied, as you know, to a pay grade. It's tied yeah. uh, to the to the advancement. It's not you don't have to get it done by Friday so I can frock somebody the next Monday. It's it's tied to the time frame so that after you've been selected, you get advanced, and then when it's smart, you get them into the course. We have to have a hook so before you can advance the next time, yeah. you're going to have to have completed the course. And we know that there are some people who, by human behavior, will not get around to it until we hold their feet to the fire. But we want to unload the pressure from somebody to rush them through the course and short circuit the training by tying it to that advancement wicket so that, you know, the results come out and I got to, you know, rush, rush, rush. You know, lots of commands do that. Completely understood why they did that. But we made these changes to give them the time and opportunity to do this leadership training the right way. So, Um, and then resourcing you know when i was on active active duty you know cno vice you know there was absolute you know resource support behind it you're still mm-hmm. getting that support 
Absolutely. The CNO, 100% behind this. In fact, one of the things I love about the CNO is if we think as mass chiefs, we care as about leadership development and our enlisted sailors and our career path. I mean, we've never been so fortunate to have the, the triumvirate of leadership we've had between the CNO, the vice chief, and the chief of naval personnel pushing so hard uh, on all of these different programs and things, being so familiar with our enlisted programs and our, our development. Um, but the way the CNO pushes, and I know that sometimes we run fast and he wants it now and he wants to get things out quickly. But what I think he's shown us is we've talked about so many times, he's like a coach and he's teaching you that you can run a lot faster than you think you can. And why do we have to run so slow if we can run a lot faster? Why do we make sailors wait on bureaucracy when we can move faster than we are moving now? There's no reason for it. And in a world where the, Chi the Chinese and other nations are making gains in leaps and bounds, we don't have time. Our near-peer competitors are wasting no time, and we can't eat, afford to. We just can't. So, Yeah. Uh, what would you tell junior officers listening today uh, about laying the keel and about the process of, of growing the future chiefs in the Navy? How can they help? How can they help you implement uh, this policy? Who's the they? Sorry, I'm sorry. That's uh, the first ju word. Junior officers. So junior officers can help, really, by getting involved and and. And certainly by watching and participating, I think uh, our junior officers are not absent the leadership responsibility of their divisions. We may have the experience, but as you know, I used to say when I was out here, you never abdicate being in charge. So please take our advice. Please listen to what we have to say. But uh, we take our cues from you, and there's a reason we salute you despite that experience gap. So uh, get involved and learn why we do what we do. And listen to us as we teach and and why we teach what we teach and not only will you learn but in in hear you know what we're saying and perhaps taking some take something away from it but you'll also understand the mechanics of how we teach it and by the time you're a more senior officer you'll understand a lot of how they've grown and developed and you'll understand a lot more about them and as a, as a as an XO as a CO you'll you'll certainly know more about them and you'll be that you'll be so much better in command because you'll understand how they work, how they think. Gotcha, gotcha. So a couple of weeks ago, Admiral Moran was uh, at a maritime security dialogue at the uh, Center for International uh, Strategic and International Studies that we, we put on, uh, and he talked a little bit about retention right? mm -hmm. and how retention right now is at an all time, almost an all-time high. It is. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, what, are you, you know, what challenges do you have in retention? Are they specific to certain rates? Uh, what are you hearing from sailors about wanting to stay in, why they're staying in? Uh, and right now, 3.6% unemployment, that's an, an, you know, usually when unemployment is, is low, retention is low. And when mm -hmm. unemployment is high, retention is high. So right now we have a little bit of an oxymoron going on. Can you explain that? No. So we, so as you said, we, we haven't had this high a retention, um, not even after 9-11 did we have retention this high. To be honest, I don't think anybody has the perfect explanation as to the why. Um, you're right also in saying that uh, unemployment in our target demographic is at a 50-year low, and that has not happened before in these two things in conjunction. So um, we're not looking a gift horse in the mouth. Um, we recognize that while we have met recruiting goals for uh, – either almost or just over 12 years. I have to go back and look at the months. But uh, we have, have not, in well over a decade, we have not missed a recruiting goal. We have 
done a lot of work with our recruiting processes. We've moved to this thing called the NTAG, the uh, Navy Talent Acquisition Group. Uh, and we've done this to become more of an efficiency I hate to use the term, but it's more of an assembly line sort of process where Paul and I are both recruiters at a station. He and I used to have to go out and compete against each other to try and bring in sailors. It's like, hey, there's six of you. Each of you needs to go get five recruits. Now, as a, as a station, we have a team goal to get whatever we need to get. And I actually have a national goal that goes not even by district anymore. I just have a national goal what I need to get. So I know that I tend to get a lot of nukes up in the Northeast. I know that I tend to get a lot of... Uh, um, frogmen and expeditionary types, uh, somewhere between Northern California, Washington State, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. They tend to come from those colder, more austere areas. I tend to get a lot of our our really uh, difficult uh, tr- skill and trade rates in the southeast. So we don't goal specifically by district anymore. We tend to goal by whatever the nation needs and where we can get them. So in the station, in this NTAG concept – Paul and I work together. Paul's really good at talking to folks. So he goes into the high schools and he finds folks and he he finds them and he closes them. And then he sends them to me. And I'm really good at processing folks and walking them through the classification process. And I find the right fit for them. And then I hand them off to somebody else who's going to take them through the next step. And as a team, when we meet the goal, we qualify for SDAP level seven, which is that $600 SDAP that almost no one ever sees. And you get that for a year when you meet your team goal. And by doing it that way, we found a much, much more uh, uh, efficient process that has, has helped us meet goal, even in, in times when it's been very, very thin, uh, but we've managed to meet it. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the morale at the recruiting stations is higher too, because instead of re- competing against each, each other, other you're working, working together. as a team right? exactly yeah. yes sir no i love that great yeah, use of reward power as i like I would it say, right yeah. a different yeah. different approach to it too it's a very different approach and to be honest with you it's uh it's a bit of a learning curve you know we're, we're shepherded by a very experienced very helpful uh cadre of what we call our, our uh, career recruiting force nc's and they've had to learn a very different dynamic and they've really been the key to turning this corner safely because you know we rely on our fleet fleet sailors to come out to us and help recruit and it's those those experts that stay in the community that really have to be the ones that shepherd this effort to make this work and so our success or failure long term in this effort is going to be dependent on those crfers do you know where was that like a, a bottom-up idea that came from sierra force or who uh, do you know where it no came from? to be honest with you i'd 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 be wagging it if okay. i tried to tell you gotcha. where it came from but uh um so one of the tones of the last, I don't know, couple months, and, you know, there have been a, several podcasts, there was a couple articles that mm-hmm. were, you know, from a variety of people, um, I don't know if I'd say challenging, or at least brought up a conversation about the health and focus of the cheese mess, uh-huh. right? Um, I heard you talk about this at RTC, I, you know, sure. kind of thought it was a good approach, but there seems to me there's a tension between, I don't know if it's generational, I don't know if it's communication, um, but there's a tension or need I see from sailors to want to contribute to a learning culture because they're hearing that sure. or contribute and, and their <clears throat> perception or a sense. And it's not just from the people writing because I'm getting a lot of feedback um, that the chief's mess isn't enabling that per se. And the chiefs are in a position, as we know, right, to kind of enforce some you know good order discipline and make sure compliance based rules order stuff is in place where it's needed. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to start off by saying anytime I love a, I don't remember who said it to me first, but I say it all the time and repeat. Um, anytime you speak in absolutes or generalities, you're probably going to be wrong. Um, it's very, very difficult to speak uh, in absolutes and just be right. Because there are so many things where there are exceptions. There are so many places where to say the chief's mess is you know, wrong is, is, is wrong. The chief's mess is getting it done, or we wouldn't have the Navy that we have. The chief's mess is accomplishing its mission and making the Navy, Navy greater than the sum of its parts, or we wouldn't be the Navy that we are today. We would not be out there steaming. We would not be meeting the mission in so many different areas where we otherwise don't have the wherewithal and expertise to do with what we have. Chiefs innovate and solve problems every day across this Navy to make our Navy great. Do we have challenges? Absolutely we do. Do we have some who struggle at times to hear uh, and perhaps learn from those who are junior to them? Of course we do. Do we have some who don't take direction well? Of course we do. But we are not exclusive to that club. Do we have junior sailors who sometimes want to take the lead and don't want to take direction as much because they feel like they are as capable or as smart, <clears throat> in some cases older, um, more educated than, than the people they work for. Think about the dynamic of the chief and the junior officer. There, there is some give and take, and there has to be some willingness to look at each other and say, I think I can help you, and I think I can also learn from you. And <clears throat> in the case where that's a chief and a junior officer, we have that dialogue. In the case where you have a 34-year-old first-class petty officer who has a master's degree, or in some cases a PhD, uh, and you have a chief petty officer who has an associate's degree, that same conversation might have to be had. But that same conversation should be had rather than just saying, they shouldn't listen to me and I should run the organization. And I think that there is some... Um, we need to look as chiefs at our junior sailors and remind ourselves that we serve them and, and that the work we do enables them at the same time, our experience and what we bring to the table as, as expert technicians, we have that space, we have that opportunity for a reason, and it shouldn't be discounted simply because we're chief petty officers. And if you've met one, uh, I, I, I've told this story, I did not, my, my first chief was awesome. Uh, chief Mark Boardman was phenomenal, and he retired as an AOCM. He was a WT when I met him. He's the reason I became a WT. And he retired as an AOCM. He was the CMC of VAQ Wing Pack up at Whidbey. And phenomenal, phenomenal chief petty officer. After that, I didn't have a lot of good chiefs. I had a great LPO, Gary Martin, who's now a captain, who's getting ready to retire down in Pensacola, um, was phenomenal. I had great first classes, uh, Chris Engels, who retired as, as a yep. force mass chief, you know, in our leadership mess, um, and some great folks, but um, I didn't have great chiefs. But where I didn't have a great chief, other chiefs in the mess looked out for me. At SEAL Team 4, I mean, he remembers, I did not have a great chief. But I had Chief Leanna Boyer, who retired as a mass chief YN, who's now up at Great Lakes working manning issues. Uh, I had... I didn't have great chiefs, but I had other great chiefs looking out for me. And then I got to the Carl Vinson, and I had a guy named Chief Tom Boynan who took me under his wing, and I made chief working for him. And he's the best chief I've ever known at chiefing, at just being the chief and taking care of sailors, taking the worst sailor and making them good, and taking the, the good sailor and making them the best. 
you would not, you will never find a, a guy better at doing that than he was. And he retired as an IS mass chief. Um, I, but everywhere we've had, and I think that's the key where we do have weak ones in our herd, mm-hmm. we know who they are and we find ways to work around that weak chief to, as, as the whole, take care of the one who isn't because there, there are sailors that are affected by that weak chief. So we're not perfect. We're human beings. Chiefs are humans. And so recognizing that they can have human failures and things going on in their lives, uh, issues with their spouse, with their children, with, you know, with everything that goes on in a life, others in the herd take care of them. And that includes their sailors when they don't have the bandwidth to do so themselves. Absolutely. So from a, uh, so I agree. I think, you know, when you look around the Navy, everything that's going on, you know, mm-hmm. you want three aircraft carriers off the coast of a country, they're there. If you want DDGs putting, you know, missiles in a be- from a basket, they're there. All the work that goes to prepare the fleet to deploy, you can't say that's <clears throat> not directly influenced by the cheese mess. Um, but they're in a resource-constrained Navy that's hopefully coming out of that, right? So towards the end of my time, you know, I know we were starting to invest in, you know, chiefs need resources, right? They need people, mm-hmm. they need tools and uh, parts, they need time. Uh, and they need training. So what are you seeing with that? I know there's some investment coming back into the fleet. Is that sustaining itself? Or are you starting to see, hey, you know, as the budget uh, rolls out looking forward, are the marks already starting to come in? You know, where are the challenges to resourcing going to be? So so two years running, we've had a really good budget. And I was, as as all of us were, I think in DOD, very encouraged by the president's budget that dropped and, and what they've proposed. Um, we'll see how Congress marks it up. Um, very optimistic in what we've heard as they've kind of chewed through and are making their mo- marks and testimony, you know, soon starts. Um, I, I think that they've heard the message that consistent, steady funding is absolutely critical to our national defense because when you have to operate under a CR, as you all know at this table, there are so many things that you cannot do that really hamstring us uh, and consistent steady funding that comes from a from an established budget is the only way to really make things work. Uh, if you want to keep the best artisans in shipyards, you have to promise them steady work or they'll go find work at Fincantieri or other cruise line builders. You know, they'll go where they can get paid and we have to offer them that if we want them to stay with us and build our ships. Yeah. So we've heard that, uh, you know, across the F-18 fleet, for example, because of steady, you know, uh, well-resourced budgets for a couple years in a row, the uh, FMC rates have risen up into the 70s and you know touched on 80 uh, percent, which is uh, former Secretary of Defense Mattis's goal for you know the fighter fleet. Um, a couple of months ago, maybe six months ago, there was a, a USNI news story about how across the waterfront there were 7,000 gapped billets on ships at sea, roughly 7,000 ships, 7,000 gapped uh, billets, sorry, uh, sea duty billets. Where does the Navy stand on that now? So we've made we've made progress, and we're on glide slope to. Uh, my information is a couple months time late, but I believe we're still on glide slope for end of twenty twenty, beginning twenty twenty one, to be at about ninety seven point five, ninety eight percent manning uh, at sea. So I think we're we're getting where we need to go and you can't just grow there from boot camp. You right. know, we've pulled on the higher tenure levers. People can stay longer. Um, we have increased accessions. Of course, we're going to hit 40,000, uh, this year. So haven't done that since 2008. And, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And it's really the, it's, we're not really, 
the the cork is not um, in the in the boot camp. It's it's in that A school C school advanced training pipeline that that's really hard to get people through on time. Um, but higher tenure is a lever. Um, the reserves back onto active duty. Last year we pulled uh, 1,162 people back onto active duty, and we will probably pull as much or more this year as we continue to try and feed that beast. Uh, and get more people back on and out to those billets. And those reservists were happy to come back on. Oh, active they were. Duty? They're, they're willing. We we have no shortage of our, our reserve force that that wants to come back to active duty. You know, but we've got to be careful because the reserves have requirements that they also have to maintain and man. Sure. And the last thing we want to do is deplete our reserve force to the point where they can't meet their mission. Um, uh, it's complementary to ours, but it is different. And so we've got to be careful that we don't uh, impinge on on. Uh, uh, what Vice Admiral McCollum has to do is the Chief of Naval Reserve, but we we do look to them as a as a as a helpful pool of folks to to get to that mission that we need to get to and man our ships. Got it. Uh, we were chatting a little bit before we uh, started the show about uh, what you you termed white noise, and so uh, others might term this you know this the strategic seaman or the strategic corporal, uh, the ability, particularly you know with uh, everybody's got a phone, everybody's on Facebook, everybody has the ability to record things that are happening, uh, sometimes embarrassing, or just post stuff them you know the, themselves that gets uh, high order attention. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the news this week was uh, you know uh, probably. Uh, I think most people will agree a an unfortunate comment by uh, the, the command master chief um, on board the USS Harry S. Truman, uh, you know, trying to get people excited uh, for the vice president's visit last week. Uh, and that that took off. That story took off. Uh, a number of outlets have, have covered it. How do you react to that kind of an event? Uh, and, and, you know, what, what's the impact of that? So a comment that uh, I, th- I think you saw the comment. I think when it hit the Twitterverse, you know where where it went, the second and third order effects uh, throughout the media um, and how it was perceived, uh, and how many different media outlets of, of different types uh, use that comment for their own purposes. I think it's unfortunate the Navy kind of gets caught in the middle, but the fact is, comments like that uh, from senior leadership contribute to. Uh, what we call a climate of white noise and and can could lead someone to think that things farther downstream might be if not acceptable perhaps tolerable and that's just not an environment that we can we can allow and uh i wasn't prepared to, to, to talk about this but i'll tell you that the command master von truman uh that recently departed is a good man and he's a good he's a good sailor um and he's done a great job for 28 years for this navy uh it's unfortunate um the comment that he made and i don't think he had any intention of making the comment that he made in the environment that he made it nor the second and third order effects that resulted from it um and i think I was glad that he let us know that he knew uh, before we even had a chance to talk to him, you know, where, what he wanted to do as a result of it and what, what came about. Yeah. And, I mean, he owned it. Yeah, and, 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 and I a respect mark of a great so much character that, as well. Yeah. Right? And, and to be honest with you, you know, everyone's, um, one of the best things that I ever did, and it was the very first thing I ever did at the Naval Academy was attend this thing called the character capstone. And it features the story uh, of a Marine captain who was flying an EA-6 that uh, accidentally flying too low, clipped the wires of an Italian gondola, which crashes the ground, kills 20 Italians. 
and he was making a video throughout the flight and um, when they land they're arrested by the Italian police they go to the police station they are released at one o'clock in the morning they go back to their command uh, they're questioned by their command. There's a, he destroys the video. He's asked later if there is, or he's asked if there's a video or any other evidence. He says no. He destroys the video. Um, later, he comes back and says there was a video. I destroyed it. He was court-martialed for destroying evidence. He was given dismissal from the Marine Corps. This is the final of, of the day's events. This is the final, um, um, what do you call it, scenario that you run through. And... Um, after we debate and discuss this with the midshipmen and the character, you know, the decision to, one, destroy the video, what led to that, two, the decision to come back forward to reclaim his honor and say, hey, you know what, I made a mistake, I did something I should not have done, I want to be a person of honor and character, uh, I am a person of honor and character, and I'm taking this back, um, I'm reclaiming it, uh, to do so was a very critical step in, in his development. Whatever the results with the Marine Corps were, in his personal development as a human being, that was a very important step for him. And so you debate and discuss this, and you hear all these judgy opinions from young midshipmen, 23, all about to graduate from the Naval Academy, with one old fleet mentor at each table. And uh, when you're done with this, and Captain Huey would stand up and say, hey, thank you very much, appreciate everybody's spirited debate. Before we go, though, the captain of this is, you know, he's standing in the back of the room listening to this whole thing, and he comes forward. I almost swallowed my tongue. <laughs> and uh, he stayed behind with me and talked with me for about 20 minutes. It was one of the most insightful conversations I've had my entire life. It reminded me a little bit of that in that he said what he said immediately after he said it, uh, he knew that what he had said was not the right thing to say. And at the first opportunity, he owned it and he did the right thing. He is a person of honor. And I appreciate very much that he didn't put the chain of command in a difficult spot. He just said, hey, you know what? I, I probably need to do this. And um, recognizing the, the impact of his statement and what it did, um, said, I need, to, I need to go. I need to do this. So. I think the good news of... of how this will play out. And we know this from some of our peers um, who've had a similar uh, sort of um, inelegant end to a otherwise amazing career is the pain and the sting. It feels like you're now your career is going to be defined by that characterization at the end, but that's not what happens. Right. Yeah. And so as time goes on, um, his career will be know, defined by 28 years of incredible. That's my service. point. Yeah. And, and the fact he's a man of great character. Um, so, um, yeah, so that you know, if there's a, but, a good I, part of the story, and, that, that's and I, it. And I do believe in the organization and and what we as the Navy expect and hold our leaders to as a standard. And saying, you know, we have the responsibility to hold our leaders to a standard to be clear in what we expect out of our out of our sailors and our leaders in setting that climate and conditions for success and um, making sure that everyone knows that you know, how we stand on these issues. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, like you were talking about earlier, we're humans, mm -hmm. right? But this is like your closer who's thrown these blazers over the, the plate at 95 miles an hour and suddenly throws one into the stands. <laughs> like, I did not see that one coming. Right. Right. 
Um, so, you know. But it, but it reminds me, you know, I mean, this gets back to the whole discussion about character development and that it's got to start early in somebody's career, whether mm-hmm. officer or enlisted, right? And, and you know, this laying the keel program, uh, and you mentioned at the start that, that this is, uh, you know, we're having conversations about leadership uh, at, at pay grades that, you know, 20 years ago didn't happen. You know, people started <laughs> thinking about being leaders when they were LPOs, mm-hmm. when they were, you know, up for chief, right? And and for, you know, junior officers, really, you know, not till, you know, maybe until you were a lieutenant. Uh, because the first, you know, couple of years you're worried about getting your pin and getting your qualification and getting your watch standing checked off and, and all those things. And now it, it's backing it up, right? And so that capstone um, uh, course at the Naval Academy you mentioned, uh, I got to be a senior mentor this year. Uh, and I was blown away by it. And I, you know, a bunch of my classmates were there for that day. Uh, it was the end of March. And we all said, God, I wish that this program had existed when we were here, uh, you know, back in the in the mid to late 80s, because, um, you know, it's in, it's integral to talk about integrity and character development uh, from day one and continue that throughout your career. Because, you know, we're, we are all, you know, fallible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make mistakes and we have to be reminded what the standards are, uh, what the right thing is to do and to own the right thing. Hey, uh, so definitely in the uh, co-director of outreach piece, uh, I'm now engaging, helping the Naval Institute with the strategic plan of broadening its reach, right? And I think we all understand like, hey, um, when you thought Naval Institute before, you thought wardroom. But um, much different, you know, Navy now, much different uh, enlisted force. We have an inside man. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that. And I'm trying, right? Um, the insurgency begins. Yeah. So beyond just um, champion writing, one thing I find myself, and I think this is in the frame, the leadership development framework of CNO, is like, hey, the value of professional organizations in general, not just the Naval Institute, but whether it's Surface Navy Association or Aviation Boats and Maid Association, um, what are your thoughts on those? What are the because I know you're a member of the Naval Institute, you're writing and doing those kind of things. Could you give some thoughts and what would you tell sailors or you know any naval professional about why it's important to be a part of a naval organization or a professional organization? So any any prof, any professional organization that binds together your tribe, whatever it is, uh, I think is important because it it contributes to that camaraderie. And I don't know if you've had a chance to to look over. Uh, Navy Leader Development Framework 3.0, but in it, CNO talks about connections. And those things that you mentioned are all examples of connections. Um, perhaps not the ones that, you know, we're specifically talking about when we talk about connections and networking, but they are yep. examples of connections and networking. Yep. They're just within specific communities, but across communities and, uh, you know, across warfare communities, across commands. How we network and connect and talk to each other cannot just solve some of our problems when it comes to effective leadership and being more efficient. But, you know, when we talk about problems like suicide, you know, fitness plus belonging times identity squared is that toughness tang that we talk about so often. And um, that belonging, that sense of belonging that comes from that connection to others. You know, that doesn't happen through email. That doesn't happen through electronic media, looking at your phone. That happens through that eyeball to eyeball connection that we get at quarters. That happens through that, that human interaction that we have one to another, the connections that the CNO talks about. And that's the connection that he's, he's referencing. And I think that through those connections and those professional organizations are great places to come together to have those connections whatever they are and you can be not just one you can yep. be a member of many different ones 
Um, but in those places and spaces, you can find those, you know, those are ways to connect. And I encourage anybody in any of those that you find a home, to, you know, belong to some of them, belong to many of them, um, and find ways to interconnect with your tribe or tribes. Yep. Um, Amen. That's a that's a great way to wrap this up. We uh, unfortunately are out of time, but we are so happy to have uh, Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, Russ Smith, join us in Studio B today, uh, live on the podcast. And uh, we have a couple of gifts for you, Russ. Uh, I'll have to clear them with legal. Yeah, yeah clear them with legal. <laughs> or yeah. Call them awards. <laughs> They're awards. That's right. Honorary awards. So, Two-time uh, guest, you get an award. That's right. That's yeah. right. Right. Which awards. Three-time awards. Really, right. We ramp it yeah. up. Victory begins at the Naval Institute, and on the, on the front. On the front is a picture of uh, John Warden, and you used to live on Warden Field. Uh, do, you, do you have a slightly smaller? <laughs> we, we do. We have, we have somebody it's a night shirt. It's we, not a t-shirt. It's a night shirt. We have someone looking for a smaller one for you. And we also have uh, uh, two of our graphic novels uh, from um, Dead oh, wow. Reckoning, the, the Naval Institute's new graphic novel imprint. Uh, so we have Men at Sea. Uh, by Riff Rebs, and we mm-hmm. have The Night Witches, which is a story we uh, interviewed on the podcast. Uh, uh, Garth Ennis, the, uh, the the writer for this one, uh, it's about uh, Soviet Air Force pilots, uh, oh. female pilots in World War II, all the way up through the uh, uh, through the Cold War. And it, the the art in both of these is absolutely stunning and beautiful. So, Atlichna. Uh, yeah, Atlichna, yeah. Uh, so really, really great to have you on the on the podcast. And Russ, uh, continued uh, best wishes uh, as you continue uh, as Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. You got a, you got a big job. Avam <laughs> toja. Okay. Take care. Uh, and for those who uh, weren't underst- didn't understand why uh, we just spoke to each other in Russian, uh, I was a naval attaché in, in Russia. And uh, before I got there, uh, Russ was a, um, was a uh, collections a, collections NCO and he was a, uh, a chief, chief petty officer who worked at uh, the defense attaché office in Moscow during one of his tours as, a, as an IS. So, uh, yeah, our, our paths have intertwined uh, numerous times, and it's great to have it uh, happen again here. Uh, on the proceedings podcast and uh, so uh, victory begins at the naval institute we'll catch you all next week the proceedings podcast is brought to you by the bell 407 gxi a helicopter bringing advanced training technology best value in life cycle sustainability to the next generation of naval aviators see the bell 407 gxi in action at bell.co slash navy 407